0: Amen. So last week, uh, I kind of, um, you know, intro a series that we're going to be preaching on, on discipleship. And, and today, I'm going to tackle one of eight subjects. Um, I'm going to talk about the subject of selection. And when we talk about discipleship, you know, we're not going to make this overly complicated. Here's what we mean by discipleship. Following Jesus and strengthening others who want to follow Jesus. And we strengthen them for the purpose of strengthening others who want to follow Jesus. So that discipleship is this multiplicative work that takes place. Matthew 28, 18-20, it, it tells us of a passage that we might know, very familiar as the Great Commission. And it says this, "...and Jesus came and said to them, "...all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." This is the Great Commission. Go and make disciples. And when we talk about making disciples, we're not, we shouldn't mistake this with going and making converts. Discipleship is different than evangelism, and we're going to talk about that today. But this isn't just saying go and make converts. This is saying go and make disciples. Go and make followers of Jesus. Last week, I talked about a couple key things in, in objective You know, I talked about what was the objective of Jesus. And his objective was clear. He came to save the lost. And he came to build an eternal kingdom. To save the lost. And to build an eternal kingdom. When we talk about Jesus, we we have names for Jesus. We have titles for Jesus that reflect his character and that reflect who he is and and we call Jesus so he's our king. The Bible says he's the king of kings and lord of lords. And we call him our champion, we call him our victor. But do you realize that after he died on the cross and rose from the grave and ascended he, he told those who were following him to wait for the holy spirit. He said, "Wait. Gather together, wait. Be in one mind, be in one accord. Pray together, be together, wait. Because the Holy Spirit's going to be sent to you. So, our, our great and victorious King and champion, Jesus Christ, you realize that the people that were numbered, that waited upon him, that were following him, it was only 120. He had 500 or so followers you know kind of throughout his ministry but after he died that number got smaller and by the time people were waiting for the holy spirit it was down to about 120 why do i point this out when well, we talk about jesus being victorious and champion that his his objective was to save the lost but yet there's only 120 following him his objective was to build a kingdom that would last forever. Yet there's only 120 people for, you know, that will gather together in His name in belief. So was He successful? Was He successful? I want to make a point abundantly clear that when we talk about evangelism, Jesus wasn't an evangelist. That's our job. It wasn't Jesus' job to go around talking about Jesus. He didn't do that. In fact, what Jesus did a lot of times was, hey, don't say anything. He even, he even told his disciples one time, don't, don't tell of this until after I've died and, and after I've resurrected. Then you can let everyone know. He was strategic in everything he did. But it is our job to be evangelists. It is our job to tell people about Jesus. And it is our job to make disciples. Why? Because that was his plan. Because the method of God was men. Men and women. Mankind. That was his method. That was his strategy. He poured into a small group of people. Spent time with a small group of people. Did life with a small group of people. And demonstrated to us that we're to do the same. And then when he gave instruction at that commission, after he he rose from the dead, before he ascended, and he said, go and make disciples. Do what I have done. When we talk about the great commission, we have to also talk about the great, what? The great commandment. There is no great commission, there is no success in the great commission without walking out the great commandment, and the great commandments found in Matthew 22:36 through 40. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, "You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind." This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. When we talk about making disciples, friends, we have to talk about fulfilling that great commandment of love. Loving God and loving others. I talked about the first thing that we got to do when we walk out Making disciples is following Jesus ourselves. It doesn't stop. It's it's futile to try and make disciples, but stop following Jesus. It doesn't work that way. We've got con- to continuously grow, to seek, to find, to hunger, to thirst, to be filled, to be emptied, to be filled again and emptied again and filled again, because that's what the Holy Spirit does. To follow Jesus there must be love love God and love our neighbor so who's our neighbor according to Jesus it's everyone it's everyone the Greek word for neighbor is placeo and is translated as this any other person according to the Jews any member of the Hebrew nation and then it says according to Jesus any other man irrespective of nation or religion anyone we meet that is our neighbor and that is who we're told to love I want to say this isn't some social edict. The love that we are called to love people with is the love of God. It's it's the only love that changes lives. It's the only love that saves. It's the only love that delivers and sets free and heals. The best way to love God and to love our neighbors is to follow God. Jesus. You guys, our love, although wonderful, your love is wonderful, my love is wonderful, it does touch lives, it does make a difference, it it really is wonderful, it's just not enough. It's just not enough. As wonderful as your love is, it doesn't save. As wonderful as your love is, it doesn't set free the captive. Only the love of God demonstrated through Jesus Christ does that. So how do we learn to love like Jesus? How do we learn to love like Jesus? It's needed in discipling. It's needed in being a disciple. We follow Jesus with our eyes and our ears open, with our hearts and our minds open open. And then we do what He does. We do what He says. We follow where He leads. And then we strengthen others with that same love. Do we, do we really want to love God? Is it, I mean, is it really in us? Do we really have the, the burning desire to love God? To grow in love for God? If we do, we have to understand something. The way that He sees love and the things He asks for as His understanding of love are different than how we might ask for love. And we have to come to grips with this. The way he sees love is how we love. The way that he says love me this way is how we love him that way. Regardless of if we're comfortable. Regardless of of if it's not one of our love languages. Regardless of any of that. So how does God see love? We're going to spend some time in John... 14 here for a second, which spells it out just wonderfully clear for us. We're going to start with John 14, 15, and then I'm going to jump down to verse 23. So John 14, 15 says this, If you love me, you will keep my command. Pretty clear, right? Any questions about what this means? We're actually we can do a Q&A right now. If this is vague or ambiguous in any way, any any questions what Jesus means, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Yes, it speaks to the great commandment. Yes, it speaks to to love me, the you know the Lord God with all your heart, mind, and soul strength. Yes, it means to love others. But it goes deeper. So verse 23, Jesus answered, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. If we love God will keep his commands. So it begs to reason that we need to know his commands to keep his commands, right? So I want to make something clear. The word of God, the, the Logos, the written word of God okay, the Bible is full of life. It's not a book of regulations, it is a book of life. And as we spend time with the Lord and we ask, and we read the Logos, we read the written word of God, we, we ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, would you, bring, would you bring rhema? Would you bring spoken words to us? Would you, would you unpack this for me? Would you tell me what this means? So we, we, we're not just plowing through literature. It's not Mark Twain. We're not waiting to get to the point where Huck Finn is painting a fence. You know, we're, we're not, it's, not, it's not literature. It's the word of God. And it's meant to be interactive. So we spend time in the Word and we read something and we go, Huh. Holy Spirit, what does that mean? Can you unpack that for me? What does this mean? Let my eyes be open to see. And we might read for a little more. We might meditate for a little more. We might just sit and, and just meditate and think upon the Word and give the Holy Spirit a chance to respond. And the Holy Spirit might be like, read it again. And we read it again. And we're like, I already read it three times. I'll read it again. And you read it again and boom, something just comes alive. Why? Because that's Rema. Because that's what, that's what the Holy Spirit does. He makes logos come alive. But to know what His commands are, we've got to spend time in the Word of God. And it's not knowing what His commands are so that we can appropriately follow rules. It's knowing what His commands are because He is good and only good, and the things He has for us are only good. If there was a command in the Bible that says "Don't touch a hot stove," that's not heavy or oppressive. It's there to protect us and keep us from harm. Now, there's not one that says "Don't touch a hot stove," but there there are many commands in the Word of God that are there to protect us just as much. To protect us just as much we love God we obey God and his commandments and friends we need to grab a hold of this this is not obedience out of obligation this is obedience out of affection and trust don't go there why Lord it looks so pretty just don't go there but Lord it looks great it's not great don't go there okay Lord Where do you want me to go? Just sit tight, or turn around, or take a left, or whatever it is. I think it's arrogant. I I really do. I'm just being totally honest with you. I think it's totally arrogant for us to ask God to justify himself to us. Well, why not, God? That looks beautiful. That looks great. And there's a lot of people over there. Explain to me why I shouldn't go there. I, I think it's arrogant. To, to ask the creator of the universe to justify himself to me. To explain himself to me. I think it's arrogant. And I, I think it's just audacious. But here's how good our God is. If we come to him with, with humility and grace, he's going to unpack his plan for us. But but we got to trust him for it. See, I, I've never seen a road map from God where he says, you know, go two miles, hang a right at the, the oak tree, go 3.5 miles, and then you're going to have a dirt road, you're going to take that dirt road, you're going to have to get out of the car, you're going to have to open up the gate, drive through, close the gate, then you're going to go to a fork in the road, and then da-da-da-da, and then when you get there, there's this beautiful pond, and shady tree, and the greenest of grasses, and just camp there. God doesn't do that. He says, well, what was the first step I said? Get in the car and go two miles or even to back up, get in the car. Get in the car. Where am I going, Lord? I'll let you know. You get in the car, then he goes, go two miles. Well, where am I going, Lord? Two miles. And then we go two miles, and he goes, take a right. There has to be trust and affection for God. You guys, it's not just a, a blind obedience because he's law, because he's the He's the lawmaker. He's not Johnny Law. He's God. He's Jesus Christ. And we obey out of affection. We obey out of trust because he is good and only good. So we must learn to, to fully love and trust him with an affectionate obedience. So Psalm 119. I encourage you guys to read I mean, all of it's great. It's 178 verses, but I'm not going to read 178 verses, but we're going to read the first part because it's so affectionate about the Word of God. It's so affectionate talking about His, His law and His precepts and abiding in them. So Psalm 119, verses 1 through 2, says this, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those Who keep his testimonies who seek him with their whole heart friends that's talking about affection verse 4 you have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently oh that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes then I shall not be put to shame that speaks to trust guys I won't be put to shame Lord in following you I won't be harmed. I won't be shamed. I trust you. Having my eyes fixed on all your commandments, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches." I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Friends, we should be praying this. We should pray this over ourselves. Lord, help me get here. When I read that, something comes alive in me. And that's what I want to be, Lord. I want to be that trusting and that hungry for your word. Lord, would you help me get there? Lord, help me get there. I'm not there, but man, do I want to be? Dad, would you help me get there? One last verse, verse 18. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Friends, sometimes the church, we, we kind of, we have knee-jerk reactions, right? You know, we're, our hands are right here on the wheel, and, and something comes in the road, and we, we miss, and then we counter-correct, and we go too far the other way. And and we've done that in a lot of ways when it comes to the Word of God and when it comes to His laws and His precepts, we've taken this knee-jerk reaction because we're like, no, we're supposed to walk in liberty and no, we're supposed to give you know, the Holy Spirit free reign. So we're a spirit church. We're not a word church. And they and knee-jerk reaction the other way. And friends, we're a spirit church and a word church. I like those planes that have two wings. I really do. They're my favorite kind of planes because they're both needed to get me where I, where I need to go. We need the Spirit... And we need the words. They're they're not. It's not one or the other. We need them both. So, evangelism, discipleship, they're both spo- they're both supposed to be done with love. They're both supposed to be done with love. I believe they're both supposed to be. Done with a with a confidence. They're both supposed to be done with in obedience. But I, I and you know what? God bless. I mean, honestly, it's not my cup of tea. But God bless the guy who's on a soapbox, you know, who's out there doing something for the Lord, even though it's usually angry and judgmental. I mean, I guess praise God, he's doing something but i turned to 1st corinthians 13 and it tells me that anything i do without love is a noisy noisy thing and it has no effect everything we do is supposed to be out of love quite simply an evangelist is a bringer of good news evangelism means bringing of good tidings bringing of good news and what's the mostest good news What's the most good news? What's the best news we could bring? The news of Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 4, 3-5 says this. It says we're to do the work of an evangelist. It says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Even if we don't have the call or sitting in the office or the function of an evangelist, we are all called to do the work of an evangelist. We are all called to bring the good news of Jesus. I'll say this. If you don't even know a word of Scripture, let's say you're just a brand new Scripture, you don't even know a word of Scripture, you can still bring the good news of Jesus Christ because you have a testimony that He saved you and He forgave you. And His grace is upon you and your life is new and your life has changed. And you can even bring the good news without knowing a a, a lick of Scripture. Now, you're not supposed to stay in that place. We're supposed to grow in, in knowing Scripture and hide it in our hearts. We might not sin against Him. But I'm telling you, if we are a believer, we can bring the good news. And it's supposed to be with love. How can I say God's a loving God if I don't reflect his love? How can I say that God is a loving God, and if I bear his name and I reflect him, but all my actions are judgmental and harsh and critical? I don't want to be that. I'm a Christian, and I don't want to be that. I don't want to be harsh, judgmental, and critical. That's what you're offering me? Thank you, no think you know love you can speak a word of truth and love that's challenging and difficult and it's received because it was, it was spoken in love is discipleship worth doing I, I asked that question last week I'm going to af- ask it often is it worth doing because it's hard it's hard It requires sacrifice. It requires commitment. It requires giving. It requires sacrifice. Commitment. Giving. It requires sacrifice and it requires commitment. And it requires giving. That sounds a lot like love, too. That sounds a lot like love. It requires sacrifice. It requires commitment. Requires generosity and giving, and a laying down of my preference for the sake of baby's preference, right? You know, it's for the sake of you know, my baby is Kara. You know, for the, for the sake of Kara, I lay down preference. I might prefer to do this, but I, I want to make her happy, and I want to show her I love her. So I'm willing to lay down preference. I'm willing to make commitment. There is no, I promise you, if Kara was here and I was like Kara. Can I demonstrate my love to you without commitment? It'd be a loud and resounding, heck no. Is discipleship worth doing? Yeah. But it requires some effort, guys. It requires some commitment. It requires some things. But the results are incredible. And why do I say that? Because that was God's method. Men were his method. There, There is no advancing of the kingdom of God, and there is no saving the lost if we're not obedient to this Commands to go and make disciples. So I want to point out a few things. A few things that are contrary to our culture. Number one, Jesus, Jesus chose a small group. It wasn't this wide net. He selected people to follow him. He selected, from those that were following, he selected 12 to be close to him. He selected 12. From those 12, he selected three to have special access that he didn't give that right to anyone else. Peter, James, and John. And Jairus' daughter was sick, died. It was Jesus who said, Peter, James, and John, come with me let you guys hang back. And the Garden of Gethsemane amongst the, the olive trees Jesus' last time of prayer with his disciples before he was arrested and betrayed, it was Peter, James, and John said, come with me, pray. We see several instances of this. Even among the 12, there were three. Why do I say that? You guys, that's God's plan. That's God's method. He poured in to 12. And then uh, uh, for three, he poured in even more. He knew that when he left, he needed leaders who were familiar with him, who did life with him, who walked with him, who saw him move, who saw the stories, who experienced the love. He needed men that would then, when Jesus left, to say, I will tell the story. I will lead the charge. I will make other disciples. I have been changed by you, and now I will help change others for you. See, now that's tough in this society, because if I say, I'm only going to pick 12 of you, I'm only going to select 12 of you, and among those 12, I'm only going to choose three, and those three I'm really, really, really going to pour into, and you're going to have even more kind of cool you know, access, special access, a lot of it really challenging. Um, but I'm going to include you in some things that I'm even not going to include the 12 in. If I do that right away, I'm going to get bent feelings. There's going to get hurt feelings, and I'm going to be labeled as exclusive. And this is exactly what Jesus did. And you know what? The 12... We don't see any grumbling of the 12, the 9. We'll call them the 9. We don't see any grumbling of the 9 saying, Lord, why didn't you bring me to those things? Why? Because his love was so great, and he included them in his plan to such a great de- degree. They didn't mind the parts that they weren't invited or included. But, man, we, we live in a social media society where that we know when we're not invited to something, and it, it stinks, Jesus didn't invite me to the hot dog roast. Fish, hot dog roast, I don't know. It wouldn't have been hot dogs. So here's the part, the shift I want to take place. When we're talking about discipleship, stop thinking about me. Stop thinking about Andy. Stop thinking about our eldership team. Stop thinking about Kara. Stop thinking about Kim. If, if, you, if you are a seasoned Christian, stop thinking about the eldership and, and the pastors when we're talking about discipleship and think about who you are supposed to be gathering together. Who are your 12? Who are your three? Stop thinking about us because I can only disciple a small number. Now, every week I get to get up here and I get to talk about Jesus and point you to Jesus and it's awesome. And this is part of discipling. But discipling's got to include that close work. If you want to be discipled, you will be discipled. We will find someone to disciple you. But are you okay if it's not me? Does it have to be me? If it has to be me, why does it have to be me? I'm asking that question. Why would it have to be me? I guarantee there's better preachers in this room than me. I guarantee there's better uh, ministers in this room than me. I guarantee there, there's more anointed prayer warriors in this room than me. I guarantee there, there are people that, are, that can unpack the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ better than me. I, I'm just being obedient to well, what God has called me to. He called me to this. I didn't choose this. He called me to this. But friends, He called all of us to be disciples and to make disciples. And we got to stop thinking, you know, like along the lines of hierarchy. If you want to be discipled, we'll find someone to disciple you. Men will find a man to disciple you. Women will find a woman to disciple you. Men, if you want to be discipled by a woman, it ain't happening. That ain't right. We, we will disciple you. And it might be me. But I, I've only got a limited capacity in this area. You know, I, I don't care what's going on. The person in this church that I will spend the most time with outside of caring my kids, the person that I will just constantly spend the most time with is Andrew Smith, the other the other dude on our eldership. That's the guy that I will spend the most time because there's things that we do in eldership and times we come together and pray and there's times we touch base. But I I'm not discipling Andy. Andy. He has been discipled. Now Andy is a discipler. Friends, if you need to be discipled, we'll disciple you. If you are ready to disciple others, it is needed. And let me say this right here. I, This is my opinion, that those that we disciple, there should be a cool mix. And I don't know what the ratio is. I don't know. The Holy Spirit will tell you. There should be a cool mix of, of people inside the church and people outside the church. I just think there will. Now, hear me. We disciple someone who's already saved, already a follower of Christ, and someone who wants to grow in Christ. That's that's who we disciple. Otherwise, it's evangelism. Evangelism, we should be doing it, well, hopefully, you know, when people come into this place, we've already led them to Jesus. Hopefully, when they come into this place, you know, we're I'm preaching to a bunch of followers of Christ right now. That's evangelism. That's not discipleship. When it comes to discipleship, I pour into a select few who will pour into a select few who will pour into a select few. And we see in the Word of God, this is an exclusiveness. This is His plan, this is His strategy. And it's challenging because people are challenging. I don't know who the sweetest person in this room is. I'm going to look around. I'm going to go ahead and say Eleanor. Eleanor is the sweetest person in this room. Eleanor, you've just been tagged sweetest person. Eleanor's challenging because she's a person. Even though she bears that wonderful title of sweetest person, she's still challenging. People are challenging. But commitment and sacrifice and love and affection and hope, man, we got to hope in one another. And we got to point them to Jesus. And this call we have to be disciples... It's awesome. We get to do life together. We get to do life together. I get to point you to Jesus. I get to do it here, but you know what? I also get to do it, you know, over coffee or over breakfast or over whatever. Now, I want you to know that that my dance card is not filled, okay? I I want you to know that. I don't want to sound like I'm, you know, backtracking like, well, you just got done saying you can't disciple all of us. I can't. I can't, but I think there's some people that the Lord's put on my heart to disciple that I want to. That I that I want to. I mean, this is this is a great example, you know. And this isn't my notes, so hopefully by winging it, you know, like I, I want to disciple Hawk Felstead even more. He's a deacon in our church, but I believe there's greater capacity. There's greater things. I think he's going to be a, a just an evangelistic machine in pointing people to Jesus even more so than he is now, and I want to help him get there so that he can be an effective discipler of others. He loves Jesus. He's got a strong relationship with Jesus. He's been walking with the Lord for years, but yet, that's an example of someone that is just on my heart. Like, the Lord's put it on my heart. I want to, I mean, we're, this is a season of intentionality, guys. And there's others. And we got to be obedient to it. And guys, it, it, we, there's got to be a hunger in this. A hunger both to be discipled and to be a discipler. But ultimately, it's a hunger to see the objective of Jesus Christ fulfilled. That the lost will come to know him. That his kingdom will be established and advanced forever. We cannot have, when it comes to discipling, we cannot have both temporary fame and an everlasting effect. Discipleship is not about the here and the now. It's not. Discipleship is about me doing my part to advance the kingdom of God so that when I'm long gone, there's been this ripple effect work of other people discipling and the kingdom of God just keeps on getting advanced long after we're gone. It has to be the oak tree And you plant an oak tree right now, you're not not swinging on it, you're not hanging on its branches, you're not building a treehouse, you're not enjoying the shade, none of it. You plant an oak tree right now, you're doing it for the third and the fourth generation. You're not doing it for you. Right? If you're planting an oak tree right now, you're doing it so that others will get to lay in the shade. So that others will get to build a treehouse in that thing. So others will get to climb it and go to the top and see for miles. You're doing it for others. That is discipleship, friends. That is discipleship. And that is what we are called to. I want to read and close out by reading from John chapter 17. And I'm going to let the Word of God just echo what I've been saying. This prayer in John 17, Jesus has washed the disciples' feet. He's had dinner with them. He's had communion with them, the breaking of the bread, the passing of the cup of wine. He's talked to them about the Holy Spirit. It's better that I go away. It's better. The Holy Spirit will be sent and he'll guide you. This is after that. And they're walking on the way. They haven't gotten to the Garden of Gethsemane yet. It's not that that, that bleeding... Sweating blood prayer. This is the, pr- the last prayer, the last public prayer that he's praying and talking to the Father on the way to the garden. And Jesus says this to the Father, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. Verse 8, For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and they have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Who Who is Jesus talking about here? Who is he talking to the Father about? Who is he praying for? That small, selected group that he poured into for three years. And now he knows that time has come. This is his last plea. It is such an affectionate plea to the Father. Father, I've done everything you said. Father, I poured into these you gave me. Lord, I'm praying for them. Strengthen them. They've got to take your good news. They've got to take the words. It's on them now. I've done all I could do. Strengthen them. Verse 10 except for for Judas, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Just like I'm not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself. That they also may be sanctified in truth. This, this, is, this is the model Jesus laid out there for us. We're supposed to pour into the lives of others and strengthen the life of others. And it, it won't spread us too thin because we, whatever that capacity is, we just do according to what God's given us. Please, like spend time reading John 17 this week. It is so affectionate. It is so amazing. He's praying for, for the disciples. He's praying for us. Like, Lord, I'm gone, but they're the ones carrying it on. Strengthen them, Father. Let's follow the lead of Jesus Christ. Our discipleship program is not a program, it's an example set by Jesus Christ.